yellow rumped warbler. So there's a yellow rumped warbler around. And you can find that. What we're doing um, in the summer in terms of the content for our gathering is we're looking at uh, things that people can say to one another, often in religious context or context of faith, that have a little bit of truth in them, but they're mostly not true. And so that becomes kind of damaging and potentially dangerous. So I'm going to lead in a time of prayer in just a minute here. Um, and then after that, we'll uh, have a little talk, a little sermon. But the, the thing that is damaging that we sometimes say to one another that we're considering this morning is, God will only give you what you can handle. Um, yeah, I don't see, like most people here are going, not going, that's true. Uh, most people have lived enough to realize that's, if there's any truth in that, it's not entirely true, and it might be mostly not true. I can just think of the friends I know in this place and some of the things they've faced over the last just couple of years even, and uh, it's been more than they can handle. And so that's what we're going to look at. But we're going to lead in a time of prayer now, and what I'm going to ask is that your participation in prayer, don't worry, you don't have to stand up and say anything or do it right, um, is to ask like we'd say the Holy Spirit, to lay in your mind and on your heart things in your life that you would like to pray about, people in your life that you would like to pray for, things around the world that you would like to offer up in prayer. And you won't have opportunity here to give you know big, long paragraphs in your mind about that. But as we go through this song, um, my prayer is that some of those things would come to your mind. And that the question we have um, what does it mean that God cares for us? That you would bring that with this prayer. So this is an old song. Well, it's a rendition of an old hymn. Um, All the way my Savior leads me. That was that I have in my mind from a he was a popular uh, like Christian musician many years ago um, when Matt and Rick and the guys were in Hokusik and they met they met this guy Rich Mullins and he did a version of this song and that's where these particular lyrics come from. But it's also in my mind because my grandfather, my uh, since departed Mennonite grandfather, Abram Weave, just about as Mennonite as you can get, um, would sing a song like this in his prayers in German and would recite something like this in German. So that's what's in my mind, plus all the things that I'll pray as I read this. So I'll read each stanza. This image here, you'll see this when you leave. So that's also my hope with this prayer. The prayer kind of starts in here, but it has to be carried out of here. And if you parked in the main big parking lot, just by that green building, the government building, you will face this on your way out. This is literally taken from inside my car. Um, in, in the other photo, you can see the windshield wiper. And as you're leaving, there's just this nothing place, this not even a field, and it's become so very beautiful. So let me read these lyrics as, as a prayer um, that... I and you are offering up your prayers to God. So the way I do it is when I say all the way my Savior leads me, that because that's not like all the way you lead me, Lord, right? But it becomes prayer in, dear Lord, what does it mean that you lead me? Would you lead me now? Right? So that type of, you can make that translation. All right, so here we go. Heavenly Father, hear our prayer as we gather. And the prayers of all in this grounds. Show us what it means to pray, to pray without ceasing. All the way my Savior leads me, 
What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his faithful mercies, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, heir by faith in him to dwell. For I know, whate'er fall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, and he cheers each winding path I tread. Father, forgive us our sin. And he gives me strength for every trial. And he feeds me with the living bread. And though my weary steps may falter, and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from a rock before me, though a spirit or though a spring of joy I see. All the way my Savior leads me, oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit clothed immortal wings its flight through realms of the day, this my song through endless ages. Jesus led me all the way. So Lord God, hear our prayers for those that we lift up before you. Our own hearts, as we seek to know what it means that you lead us. Our own spirit, as we become overwhelmed and need strength for trial. Our own dullness, before we see the spring from the rock. And then our sense of the future, our own mortality, that you are with us even and particularly there through realms of the day and endless ages. This Pray the Lord's Prayer together. How about that? So we'll do debts. That's the thing you need to know. And you need to know that ministers get scared when they do the Lord's Prayer without it in front of them because they famously forget the words partway through. So if you do that, it's okay. So it starts with our Father, right? So And we'll say debts, not trespasses. We'll avoid the So our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So Ken sent me an article uh, recently and had a quote in it. It was about how COVID's going to last forever. You can read it later. Um, <laughs> But um, it wasn't like a religious publication or anything, but it started with a C.S. Lewis quote. 
which was always interesting. And every Christian minister has to quote C.S. Lewis in every sermon. So, so I bought it just in time. C.S. Lewis said, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. These are these kind of urban myths that we tell each other at times in faith, like God will only give you what you can handle. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. Not necessarily. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only wishful thinking, and in the end, despair. So where does the concept, the idea that God will only give you what you can handle, come from? It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. Many of some of you, I memorized this in my growing up. No temptation has seized you. This was like given to teenagers to, you know, this is then, then you won't fall into temptation. So usually in like a sex and dating talk or something like that. Um, but, but those of us, you know, who took this very seriously, we memorized this kind of thing. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man or humanity. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. <laughs> okay. Um, and when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It's from that verse that people get this idea that God will only give you what you can handle. It's not what the verse is talking about at all. The verse is talking to a group of people, not to an individual, right? It's talking to a church. It's talking about uh, the moral life of being together as people. And it is warning against sin, against hurting one another, against things that hurt the body. So not so much just your body, though that matters too. But when it talks about the body in Scripture, especially the New Testament, it's almost always talking about the body of people. Right? Your body is a temple. So if you heard it in those kinds of ways, it was your body. But your body is a temple is your plural body is a temple. Don't destroy it. So how has it been used when it's turned into God will only give you what you can handle? It is turned into a distortion of faith for false comfort, easy explanation. And sometimes that thing that we can all feel with when someone we know is suffering or in difficulty, uh, that let's just find something nice to say to them. Because the, the depth of struggle is so real that it will cost me to enter into that. And I might not have the energy, and you might not. Why do we find it so appealing? Well, that's an easy answer. It's appealing like any slogan and like any marketing thing in the world, right? It's just, it, much that is passed off as Christian faith is just, is just marketing. Come to this church and you'll have this and this and this and this and this, right? And entire structure, structures are built on this. Life has a lot of uncertainty, a lot of pain, and a lot of suffering. And sometimes we want to buy the marketing lines. We just, we can't kind of get through next Tuesday without, okay, Everything's going to be okay no matter what. So this week, I'm the chaplain on Call at Lionsgate. I've talked about this before probably. Um, sometimes I don't get any calls. Andres, the, the full-time chaplain there, is away. And often when he's away, um, I cover. Ken used to do the same thing before he got um, a job directly in the field and can't do that anymore. Um, and I had a lot of calls this week, like 14, 16 calls or something. So going to the hospice get called into the ER because a woman is dying, she's just an hour away from dying, her family's gathered around her. Then the same day get called in the hospice. Um, I was told the couple was young, which I guess for hospice, relatively, they were in their early 70s. <laughs> um, and it was the husband sitting beside the bed of his wife. 
He said, we don't, I asked about visitors and stuff. He said, we don't really know. We don't have any family around. He clearly desperately loved his wife, was so kind and gentle to the staff. Um, or someone in great and terrible mental health distress who, after the kinds of things that that can bring up, has been in the hospital for seven weeks and desperately wants to go home, but at the same time is terrified to go home. So do I say, don't worry. God will only give you what you can handle. It's a failure to be present if I even think that. But the truth is, most of us face challenges in this, not necessarily in those most severe things. Right? There's something for for many, not all, and you can't conjure it up, so you don't know until you're there, I don't think. But there's something, like I think of this man that I sat beside for half an hour or so, beside his wife who was about to die. And there's something in those moments of desperate need that sometimes you are more open to comfort, to real comfort. Sometimes what really gets us, knocks us off in terms of, will God only give me what we can handle, are things like, am I going to have enough money to pay the bills? Or even if we do have enough money, I don't think I will next year or the year after. Or what if this goes wrong? Or what if that goes wrong? Or your own bout of depression or fear, anxiety. Or a nine-hour line at the airport. Canceled flights. Cell phone outage. God will only give you what we can handle. I guess you couldn't handle calls that day. The distortion, the falsely comforting myth, points to something, though. And so this, is, this could be our service in Christian faith to the world. It's not to just go, yeah, you know, that, that, those slogans are stupid and we shouldn't use those. It's if you're ministering, which we're all called to minister, you listen to those things that we tell one another and that people tell one another, and you think, what is the question this thing leads me to? What's the proper question to ask? If we're telling ourselves this mistruth, what's the real question that... It is before us. And there's two that I want to kind of bring up. One is, and so I mentioned this in the message, but I say it prayerfully for myself as well. What does it mean that God is watching over me? What does it mean that God is watching over us? What does that mean, Lord? And of course, the minister is supposed to tell you, here's what it means. I have three points. Mm -hmm. And they all start with C, or P, or B, or something. The truth is, I, I don't want to do that. I just know that if you ask that question, you'll get an answer. It probably won't be words, but that's why go and walk the trail with this question. And of course, in our faith, we believe that if anyone asks that question, Christian or non-Christian, God can and will speak. In this place, that's some of the reason that people come here. It's some of the reason that people come here and not church. Because church gives too many answers instead of helping people ask questions. In this place, we remember things like Jesus saying, and of course, in negative church structures, it becomes another rule. 
like another thing you're doing wrong. Like, do not be anxious. And then you're like, oh no, I'm breaking that one too. Right? But Jesus, of course, is saying it as a pastor, pastoral. You don't, you don't have to be anxious. He understands that you will and that I will. And then he's outside because he didn't have a church building. He's outside and he says, look at the flowers. They don't labor or toil and there's nothing as beautiful as them. Look at the birds. In one of the translations I was reading this morning, it said, consider the ravens. I'm going to give you a jarring thing here too. It literally said, consider the ravens because they don't have storehouses and they don't. It's not the, the perfect metaphor like in terms of nature. But what Jesus is saying to you is all your spinning and toiling and anxiety. Look at those birds. God cares for them. But then literally when I was driving down here, for some reason, went up from my house and drove down the cut to get here. And right at the bottom of the cut, some of you might have seen this, might have still been there. There was a, a dead crow. See, if you think about it enough, you realize consider the birds doesn't mean that there won't be suffering, pain, loss, struggle. Jesus is saying something deeper and more. So the first question is, what does it mean that God is watching over us? I think if we ask that, and we ask that for ourselves, for CAP, for our families, and then for the world, we'll minister to the world. But secondly, God doesn't give us more than we can handle, right? So what that mistruth brings up is this other question, what does God give? So that's what I would say. It's not like a camp spiritual exercise that you have to come back and report back in a small group. Um, and if you just want to go out and find the yellow rumped warbler, that would make me just as happy. But if you're so led, you can bring these two questions with you. What does it mean that God watches over me? And what does God give? And if you walk these grounds with those questions, you'll hear. The false comfort answer is that God gives basically everything that you would want so that you never have to worry. Physical, relational, financial security. And there are scriptural points that can be taken, particularly in the Old Testament, that God's presence and blessing meant, you know, wealth or something. But if you read the New Testament and you listen to the words of Jesus, there's something, and the Old Testament as well, there's something much deeper there. What does God give? Absence of pain or uncertainty? Of course not. And then we get, as churchy as you could get, the verse that isn't quoted that often in church because too many church people know it. Not too many, so many. For God so loved the world that he gave himself, his only son. God gives himself. So if I walk through the world with that question, if I just walk from my back door of my house, my office is in my garage, which is like on my alley, and so sometimes there's anxiety in between those two places, it's amazing. But if I walk with just that question, what do you give? and my eyes are open, I'll hear and I'll see. And the truth is, as I fret over what I feel should be given for me to feel okay, I miss what is actually given in this place. The scriptural reminder here, verses like this. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
It means that as you carry your struggle, your fear, your concern, your dullness, whatever it might be that is stopping you from feeling like fully alive, that if by God's grace you can see that the whole earth is full of his glory, you'll begin to see what it means that God gives self, himself. My favorite theologian puts it this way, and it's actually in a theological text where he is drawing a distinction between Christian and non-Christian, because in his theology he says that um, there's no such thing as believer and unbeliever. Well, what he says is that divide is entirely unhelpful for the church. If we see the world in terms of believer and unbeliever, we will only damage our witness in the world and damage our own faith in God. And then he goes further and says, if you insist upon using the word unbeliever, use it only for yourself. But he does say there is a distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian person who's been awakened to the presence of God in the world and can bear witness to that in in different ways than if you were a non-Christian. And one of the areas where he draws that distinction is this. He says the Christian sees God at work through every cloud and mist. That's this listening for what does God give. So I want to close with a scene from John chapter 11. Uh, Many of you would know this story. It's the story of Lazarus um, being raised from the dead. And if I were to ask you, what's the peak of the story? I mean, it's a pretty obvious answer, isn't it? It's the guy was dead and he's not dead anymore. That's kind of the climax of the whole thing. Um, Because that doesn't generally happen. Most people, almost all people, are not raised from the dead. So the height of it, we would think, is that. But um, in a book that I read, and this is someone I get to interview on the little podcast we have, a guy named Makoto Fujimura. may have referenced him before in speaking at CAP. He's big time. Like, it was interesting that he agreed to talk to us because, uh, anyway, he has, like, exhibits at MoMA in New York and the new Hudson's Yards or whatever. He had a big exhibit there. Worked with Martin Scorsese and... And he's American, but he does a lot of this Japanese kind of art. And in a book, he's Christian. He's taught at Regent College, places. Um, or he's lectured there, at least. Uh, he has a book called Art and Faith. And in that book, there's an extended reflection on John chapter 11, when Lazarus is raised from the dead. And I don't know that he puts it this way, Fujimura, but he gives us a new height of the story. And it's not the raising of the dead. The story that, the part of the story that hits him the most is something different. He talks in the book about the Japanese style of art called kintsugi. I don't know if I'm saying it right. But that's, and this has become really kind of big for people to use in church. Ken and I did this once, we smashed the thing. But it's when, you, when something is broken and then put back together and with gold leaf kind of adhesive and the, and the broken thing that's been repaired is more beautiful than the original. That's kintsugi. Um, but as these things go with real artists, there's a real school of this and you take like dimensions and levels. And Fujimura says that as he, as he visited in Japan a Kintsugi master, the master said to him, the highest dimension of Kintsugi art, and it was almost like theoretical in a way, the highest dimension is not to fix the thing, but to notice the broken thing and its beauty. If the artist can do that, With that in mind, that's how Fujimura gets to John chapter 11. To be present even in the brokenness. This is the new height that Fujimura gives. 
If you remember the chapter, the shortest verse in the English Bible is in that chapter, Jesus wept. And I always picture Jesus weeping in front of the tomb. But if you read the actual account, Jesus goes to see Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. They've called him back and said, Lazarus is dead, friend of Jesus. They're all friends of Jesus. And Jesus comes back and there's a little bit of back and forth with Mary and Martha and others there. And it's in that caring for the sisters and seeing the pain, particularly of one of the sisters, that Jesus looks and sees this pain, knowing that Lazarus is dead. They are not at the tomb yet. And in seeing this pain, you get the short verse. Jesus wept. Why would he weep? At Mary and Martha saying, at their consternation, their grief, their mourning, their loss, if Jesus knew that he was going to head over to the tomb, which he did, and raise Lazarus from the dead, why wouldn't he say to them, don't worry. God's never going to give you more than you can handle. Watch this. The height of the story in Fujimura's tellings is that Jesus weeps. And if you hear it, if you listen, I don't know what struggle you're carrying or what challenge, but this is what the text is saying. Jesus is present in your grief and your uncertainty. It's so much better then God will never give you more than you can handle. It's that God gives himself and is with you in those places. And I'll add this, even when you don't know it, and even when you can't feel it, even when you don't have the faith to believe it, and you need the faith of others around you to believe it on your behalf. He is with us. We are given his presence. That we would know that and carry this as we're in this beautiful place. So give us ears to hear, we ask in your name.